Chapter Four of Dead Love Has Chains by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. As Conrad had been living in lodgings and was supposed to have been reading, his disappearance made no stir. The ways of undergraduates in vacation being erratic, Mr. Harling's landlady supposed that her agreeable lodger had gone to his own people on the whim of the moment, and had not considered it necessary to inform her of his movements. The fact of his having taken no luggage was easily explained in the supposition that he had gone home. It was not till after four letters with the Cranford Park address on the envelopes had been followed by a flight of telegrams at three-hour intervals that the lady of the Riverside Villa took fright. She telegraphed to the lady of Cranford Park, whose photograph in an ivory frame stood on the book-table in Conrad's deserted sitting-room. Mr. Harling left here on Wednesday morning, September 7th. She followed the telegram with a letter in which she described the suddenness of her lodger's departure, and how, on account of her experience of undergraduate ways, she had attached no importance to the fact. Then came for Lady Mary Harling a period of harrowing anxiety, such as happily is rare in the tragedy of domestic life. Her son had disappeared from the world of living creatures. The river, or the railroad, or the woods and solitary places round Oxford, might hide the tragic close of that young life. But those graves of youth and hope, those last refuges of despair, refused to give up their secret. The most indefatigable search persevered and without rest or respite for five weary weeks. The investigations of trained investigators, men who had graduated in Scotland Yard and retired upon private practice full of knowledge and experience, could make nothing of the case of Conrad Harling. The investigators were somewhat handicapped by the instructions of their client, for, in the midst of her grief, Lady Mary had been so much a woman of the world as to stipulate that the search for her son should be carried on with the utmost secrecy. No detail, no suggestion of the tragedy was to find its way to the newspaper press, and thus the clues that are most often furnished by the outside public were wanting to her private police. Not even her most intimate friends knew that her son was missing. Even the college dons were left in the dark. Her agents opined that they could afford no assistance. Five weeks of agonizing suspense, of sleepless nights, or briefest slumbers made horrible by visions of death, and then came a summons to a little seaport town in North Cornwall, where, in a humble inn, the resort of sailors and fishermen, a young man had been found whose appearance corresponded with her son's photograph, and whose presence in that locality had given rise to considerable curiosity. Lady Mary received this summons in Hertford Street, where she had been living throughout these weeks of trouble in order to be within easy reach of her agents. The telegram came in time for her to start in the eleven o'clock express for Padstow, accompanied by Daisy Meredith, her only confidant, who insisted on going with her. And in the golden evening sunlight she was sitting in the inn parlour alone with her son. He sat by her side. He let her hold his hand. He let her kiss him but he kept a stony silence, and his eyes looked at her with a vacant stare. He was quite mad. His mother was told the story of his coming to that place in rags, with his shoes worn off his feet and in appearance a tramp, but with a valuable watch and a handful of gold and silver in his pocket. He had a gaunt and hungry look and was footsore. A doctor had been called in by the innkeeper and had pronounced him mad but harmless. His madness might be only temporary, a passing cloud. He had been living at the little inn for a month, wandering about on the hills or lying on the beach all day. The innkeeper had bought ready-made clothes and other necessaries for him with some of the money found upon him, and had done all that could be done to make him comfortable. 
but his silence made a barrier between him and the outer world. He sat among the noisy company in the inn parlor when the room was full of talk and laughter, thick with the smoke of seafaring pipes, sat in a corner by the projecting chimney, not heeding them. He ate the food that was put before him but showed no preferences, no desires. The innkeeper sent a lad to watch him when he roamed about the hills, lest he should try to make away with himself, but he had shown no suicidal impulses. He only wandered aimlessly or sat staring at the sea. Why he had made his way to that particular spot, and why he stayed there, who could tell? His mother asked no questions. She clasped her living son in her arms, the son she had thought of among the dead, and this was much. She took possession of him. The local doctor got her an attendant from Plymouth, and she carried her son to London, and installed him in his own rooms in Hedford Street, never to part with him till the wound in that beautiful mind was healed, and he was again a free man and master of his life. She made up her mind that he should never know the restraints that other mental sufferers know. She would be his nurse and his keeper. This was Lady Mary's plan, but unhappily it did not work. She had to yield to scientific opinion. He would be better away from her. Whatever chance of recovery there might be, and her advisers did not hide from her that the chances were small, his residence under her roof, the restrictions of his life while he was an unacknowledged lunatic, would lessen that chance. The constant supervision of experienced doctors and nurses was necessary for his welfare. Love could do little for him, love that he did not recognize or understand. Lady Mary yielded to medical opinion after a hard struggle. It was true that her love could do nothing for him. He did not notice her coming or going. She sat beside him for hours without winning one glance of recognition. She had heard the story of his love madness from the landlord of the Otter's Head. She knew that the fever of one brief summer, a lad's extravagant passion for worthless beauty, had withered his young life. A wanton perfidy had killed the happy boy whose path lay in the sunshine, for whom she had anticipated a life of fame and gladness. All God's good gifts, nature's lavish bounty, were turned to dust and ashes. One consideration that influenced Lady Mary was the better chance of keeping her son's secret if he were hidden in a private asylum, lost sight of by the outside world, a unit in the sum of sorrow enclosed by the walls of the spacious wooded ground surrounding a house on the edge of Putney Heath. So near London that it would be easy for her to visit him, and yet so secluded and aloof from the busy world that no one need discover his retreat. A physician of experience and position was at the head of the establishment, and the system and details were the highest outcome of modern science and modern thought. Nowhere could this martyr of a foolish love dream be better cared for, and if his reason should some day awaken from the long apathy of melancholy madness, no one need know how the interval in his life had been spent. It would be easy for his mother to tell her friends that he was a traveler in faraway places, in Central Africa, Central Asia, anywhere. Such wanderings are the natural diversions of youth and wealth. Lady Mary, for whom truthfulness was an instinct, taught herself the delicate art of lying, and in the earlier years of her son's seclusion that new learning came into play, for she was often questioned about him, most of all in the first year. Why had he left the varsity? Boys are so erratic, she said, and having found that phrase, she used it freely to answer for everything. Her son was all that was good and dear, but he was erratic. Central Africa was his passion. She never knew where he was at any moment of her life. 
Yes, of course, she admitted, in reply to friendly questions. He wrote to her sometimes. But the postal arrangements of Uganda were not quite perfect. No, she was not unhappy about him. She knew how steady he was, how brave, how clever. Yes, naturally he had companions. He was not a solitary wanderer. And so this martyr of maternal love spoke of her son while the empty shell, the simulacrum of that which was once her son, was pacing the avenue at Roehampton, or sitting in the sunshine, dead in life, the mere mechanical life of pulses that beat and limbs that can move. She went to see him two or three times a week when she was in London, and sat with him in his pretty parlour where the French windows faced south and open on a gracious flower-garden. He never recognized her. He had no occupations, no tastes, no desires. The days came and went and made no change in him. The summer after Lady Mary's autumn voyage to Ceylon there came a gleam of hope. Conrad had taken a fancy to one of the doctor's dogs, a handsome Irish setter. It was the first thing animate or inanimate that his eyes had rested on with interest since he entered that sad world. He patted the dog and coaxed her to follow him to his room. One day he called her Juno, the name of his favorite at Cranford. That was the first ray of memory. The doctor told Lady Mary that he saw in this a faint hope of ultimate cure. It looks as if the machine might work again, he said. Even this faint hope was much. The setter became Conrad's constant companion, walked with him, ate with him, slept upon his bed, and his interest in her never diminished but with his mother he remained cold and unrecognizing. Once, indeed, while she was sitting with him, he looked at her and then pointed to the dog, but he spoke no word. This was the second summer after the winter in Ceylon. She went to Italy in the autumn and spent a quiet contemplative winter in the old cities, Perugia, Verona, Bologna, Siena, studying art and architecture with Daisy Meredith, who was always ready to take up any study, to be interested in even any fad, an admirable companion, with a bright mind that caught fire at a spark. It was while she was at Siena and before the trunks were packed for home that there came a letter from Roehampton, a letter that changed the color of Lady Mary's existence. Your son's mental condition has made such marked improvement within the last month that I think I may now venture to give you every hope of his recovery. His brain has awakened from the lethargy that has so long obscured his consciousness of the outer world, and from the hour when he first noticed the house surgeon's dog, there has been a gradual revival of his intelligence, which within the last month has advanced by leaps and bounds. You will be astonished at the change, and though I would not advise his return to active life for some time to come, I have the strongest faith in his being ultimately able to resume his proper place in society." Two days after reading this letter, Mary Harding was at Roehampton. It was a lovely afternoon in April, and the beeches and elms and wide lawns and beds of tulips were glorified in the sunshine, and seemed scarcely less beautiful to the mother's eager eyes than the land of blossoming chestnuts and trailing vines through which the train de luxe had carried her, speeding homeward with her thoughts one perpetual thanksgiving to God for her son's deliverance. She stood at the French window in Conrad's sitting-room and saw him coming towards her across the lawn, alert and active, with rapid step and happy face, handsomer than in his boyhood, his dog leaping about him. They clasped hands, and he kissed her in the old boyish way. My dear mother! She could not speak. She was almost fainting, but she was just able to get to a chair and sit down with her son beside her. 
the setter made a diversion by thrusting herself between them, jealous of the stranger. "'You are as fond as ever of Juno,' Lady Mary said, and these were the first words she could find. "'She's a dear thing, but her name isn't Juno, though I call her by the old name now and then. This one is Flirt, Madame Flirt.' The dog's paws were on his shoulders, and his face was being violently lit. "'Is Juno alive still?' he asked presently, and the question told his mother that he knew of the lapse of years. "'Yes, she is flourishing, poor old dear. She must be very old. Thirteen last birthday. Yes, I remember. She was five the year I went to Christchurch. There came a silence. His mother's eyes were clouded with tears as she looked at him, and it was impossible for her to repress all signs of agitation. But he was perfectly calm.' His eyes had a thoughtful look, serenely meditative. Lady Mary looked round the room he had lived in during those weary years. His table was loaded with books, and there was his old Eton desk which he had sent there, hopeless of his ever using it, now opened and with sheets of manuscript scattered about it. She looked at the books, Darwin, Wallace, Tyndall, Claude, and several new books on electricity. "'You have taken up science,' she said, full of wonder. Yes, it is a new world for me. The house doctor here is a dab at electrical science, and we have long jaws together. But I hope you indulge yourself with a little light literature, Thackeray, Dickens, and the poets you were so fond of. They are by my bedside, my close companions. I have a good deal of leisure for reading, you see, now I have gone back to books. And you take plenty of exercise. I play lawn tennis or croquet whenever the weather is possible, and court tennis every day. Of course, you know we have a tennis court. You look in splendid health. I believe I am in splendid health. The head boss here says I ought to join you in your autumn trip. India, Ceylon, or wherever your dear old fogies send you for your asthma. Would you like that, mother, or would you think me a bore? This was more than Mary Harling could stand. She burst into tears that kept her speechless for some minutes. The house-doctor seemed to have been within earshot of her sobs, the windows being all open in the soft spring weather. He came in through the veranda and carried Lady Mary and her son to his own den, where he gave them tea, and where the conversation touched only on the lightest and pleasantest topics, with many inquiries about Lady Mary's winter travels, the pictures she had seen, Juliet's grave, historical Verona, the cathedral at Siena, the old palace at Perugia. End of chapter 4